Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm here with Bill Carroll, the president of Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois from 1995 to 2015, and then the founder of Hunter Global Education, where he continues to serve as as the chief executive. Bill, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your your own educational background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Yeah, I I like to tell people I grew up in Dallas and they started associating Texas, but I grew up in Dallas, Pennsylvania, uh, which is Northwest Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. Um, I went, was obviously grade school, high school, uh, went to King's College, University of Scranton, decided I want to be a Catholic priest. I entered seminary. Uh, went through most of that regimen, uh, graduated from the University of Scranton, then went over to Catholic University to finish theological studies. And then towards the end, I decided I wanted to leave and major in philosophy, and I did that at Catholic University. Great. And then tell us a little bit about your, your early career. Uh, you, it sounded like you were looking at the priesthood, but then made, made a shift there and went into academia. Yeah, those, those were Vietnam days, and uh, I felt guilty being in a seminary and having what was called a 4F deferment because I was cleric, a cleric. And my best friend had been killed in Vietnam. So I stepped out to uh, take on the draft. And I did that uh, quite well. Uh, but study, I got a uh, Title IV fellowship to Catholic University to study philosophy, master's degree, doctor's degree. I finished that up in ancient Greek philosophy. And then I wanted to be a teacher. And I was hired by Coppin State College, which is a historically black institution. Uh, in Baltimore. And I spent 19 years there. I started as a uh, professor uh, of philosophy. I loved teaching so much. I had this innate fear, I guess, of running out of students. So I started inventing programs. And the first program that I invented was uh, the Baltimore uh, Inmate Extension Program, which became the largest one in the country, where we went into a maximum security prison and offered the inmates a bachelor's degree. And all of a sudden, the, the reading changed from, you know, your magazines to Plato, Aristotle, and significant questions. It was a heck of an experience. That was closed down because the um, BEOG then ended inmate uh, extension programs. But we continued building programs, weekend college, and the president said, you know, Bill, uh, I want you to be dean of continuing education. And I said, I don't know, what's, what is that? He said, I don't know. I don't know either, but you'll find out. So uh, I started weekend college. The way I started a weekend college is I knew nothing about it. So I went over to our competitor and started teaching philosophy there under the guise of a philosophy instructor. And one day the dean walked in and said, you look real familiar. And, uh, you know, so I was the competition. But I learned a lot from them and kept building new programs. Um, I stayed as dean uh, for about 10 years and then decided it was time to move on. I was... Coppin was with the Maryland uh, higher educational system, and I wasn't comfortable with the state running higher education in terms of we needed permission from the Board of Regents for everything. So I decided to go back to the uh, private institutions from whence I came, and I got a vice president's job at Ohio Dominican College. And I served there five years as the vice president, as provost, as acting um, president. The president uh, went away on leave. And after five years, I decided I want to go for a presidency. And I applied to an unknown college I never heard of, Benedictine, Illinois Benedictine College in Lyle, Illinois. And they hired me. Um, And I teasingly say to the board, even to this day, you lied to me. The place was in far more trouble than you ever told me it was in. So I went over there in 95. And in 95, uh, I got the lay of the land. And uh, I was inaugurated in 96. We changed the name from Benedictine, Illinois Benedictine College to um, Benedictine University. Uh, IBC was known as Itty Bitty College. I didn't like <laughs> that at all. So we moved to Benedictine University. And my goal, if I stayed long enough, was become the Benedictine University of America. There are about 16 other Benedictine colleges. But I left before I engaged that fight. But early on, um, 
I realized the numbers were going the wrong way. We were about 1,400 students. I took a proposal, two proposals to the board of trustees. I said, uh, either get out of my way or let's close the place with honor. And our institutions, uh, although long lived, they die a very slow, very slow death. And this institution was dying. And God bless the board. They said, let's get out of his way and let's go. And that began my journey at Benedictine University. Great. And and so you mentioned that after the, the five years at Ohio Dominican that you had thought about be, becoming a university president. Um, was was Benedictine, was that the, the first uh, one that you tried for or did you learn through the process or? I... I I applied to two. Well, actually, I was supposed to become president of, Bened- of Ohio Dominican, but the sister president, Sister Mary Andrew, which is just a brilliant woman, was going to become chancellor, but then she had second thoughts and stayed as president. And I said, well, I'm out of here. I'm going to five years as, as a vice president is long enough. And so I applied to one other in New York and then Benedictine, uh, Illinois Benedictine College and got the Benedictine one. Um, I I think there's only two presidencies I applied for. And, and, you said that, you know, you joked with the board that they had lied to you. So so tell us a little more about the state. What was it? 1,400. It's not huge, clearly much smaller than when you left it. But there are a lot of smaller colleges than that that are that are making a go. What was it that made you think that you either had to really focus on growth or, or, or that it wasn't sustainable? Well, 1,400 was when I got there. But if you looked at the numbers for the previous years, we were on a downhill trajectory. And it wasn't a gradual slope. It was a steep slope. And the way that, you know, institutions like that traditionally handle budget deficits and shortfalls is they raise the tuition. And I said, we can't keep doing that. We have to find new sources of students. So, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reasons, I seem to get ideas about new programming and stuff like that. So we started popping them. I went over to uh, the uh, Muslim high school, invited myself to graduation. And uh, I stood up there and addressed the students and invited them uh, to come to Benedictine uh, University. And they, they were welcome there. In fact, I think the first three students, we gave full ride scholarships. That started a door opening of a huge number of Islam, Islamic students came to Benedictine and partnered with us to the point at which we got, at some point we were 30% non-white. Most of that was Islamic students. So, you know, and, and the board... When we advertise our positions, you want to attract somebody, okay? Uh, rarely do you see you say, hey, the bottom's falling out. We don't think this is a long-term position. Um, you know, we've all gone through that, and you got to go weed through the weeds very carefully. And I just wanted a presidency, and I didn't look as deep as I should have looked probably. It's not the board's fault. I teased them because it all turned out well. But uh, I was riding home one night and said, I really don't want to preside over an institution that closes. And I would go to the... Uh, the CIC, the Council of Independent Colleges, annual president's meeting and Association of Catholic Colleges. And all of us are walking around with smiles on our faces like roosters, okay? And I think a lot of them are thinking, am I going to even be here next year, okay? And post-COVID now, I'm sure it's worse than ever. And so we started a, a, a trajectory at Benedictine of going after new programs, always looking for new and better ways to do things. And, and you, you mentioned that, you know, obviously one of the things I'm sure attracted the board to you was you'd had a history at Coppin State and in your other positions of creating successful new programs. Can you talk a little bit about what you laid out there in terms of that initial strategic plan? Once you got the lay of the land, what did you what did you identify as the opportunities to reverse that decline in enrollment and begin the growth trajectory? And I'll go back to Ohio Dominican, Sister Mariana Matesic, okay? She's a Domin- she was a Dominican sister, okay, who got a PhD in chemistry in the 50s when women weren't getting PhDs in chemistry, much less a sister, okay? She's the brightest person I think I've ever met, and she had an enrollment philosophy. And the enrollment philosophy was pretty simple. Your enrollment is the top of the table, okay? Top of the table. Each leg is a separate source of students. The more legs you have, the stronger the table. So that was kind of the guiding force that drove me through. Okay, I've got a table here. It's really rickety. It's weak. We had traditional 18-year-old students coming in. Okay, we had fledgling graduate programs where we're coming off the uh, offering of certificates and then becoming graduate programs. That was about it. 
And that was not sustaining the institution. So one of the first things I added, and I was very successful, my first, one of my first ones at Coppin, as I said, was weekend college. I started adult programming. And we started what was called the Mosier Center for Professional Adult Education and invited adult students to come for degree completion, to take uh, certificate programs, to just do feel-good courses. Uh, and out of that, I started Benedictine Senior University, which was for people who were retired. The only way you can get in is if you're retired. And we would offer four credit classes on about anything we can get an audience for. And the audience consisted of lawyers, of doctors, of other professors, phenomenal populations of individuals. That also became a great friend-raising opportunity for the university because these people enjoyed being the academic world again and would give wonderfully back to the university. So we started with the adult programs, okay? Pretty soon, um, we had an opportunity to go online. I think we were one of the first universities in the country that were the private to go online. And overnight, I had 30 or 40 uh, uh, women from Alabama in our nursing program. Okay. I didn't even know how they found us. And we spread out very quickly through over uh, online programming. I had an opportunity to take over another college in Springfield, Illinois. And we never want to see our institutions die. So I went down to Springfield College and we and Benedictine took that over and offered programs down there. Uh, we also, uh, I had this dream as a Catholic institution, there were no Catholic institutions in Arizona and a large Catholic population. Now, I'm not a great business guy or marketer, but that smells like a key to success. So we went out to uh, Mesa, Arizona, partnered with a local city who wanted a, a private higher education, and we built the Benedictine campus out there that is still flourishing quite well. Um, I also, in the adult reign, um, we had a lot of old buildings, and all of us have old buildings. And um, old buildings are not nice. Uh, we keep them open too long, and it costs too much to tear them down. So we had this old building called the Shoal Re Residence Hall. And um, after 9-11, I got very close to the fire department, and I invited them to come in and use the Shoal building as a practice zone. Uh, and it was four or five stories. And they brought their people in to train them there. And we had situations in there where they went through caving, where the walls caved in and you're wearing full air tanks to try and how to swim through the thing, totally engulfed fire smoke in the building, plus assigning you to teams and bringing you out the window on a, on a ladder. And I took the, I'm a level one, I'm a level one fireman. Okay. Cause I took the training and I was one of the ones that had to come out a ladder on a, on a back of a, another firefighter down the ladder. He dropped me on the ground and my board chair is standing there and says, don't you ever do this to me again. Okay. So we had the fireman there. And then all of a sudden I said, well, bring the police in because they need, you know, active shooter practice. So we brought the police in and then I get calls from all over Illinois. Okay. Wanting to use that building. It wasn't costing me anything. The rule was just don't chain the outside. Okay. Do what you want on the inside. Cause it's coming down. And so about 28 fire districts that gave me an idea. All these guys out here, all these ladies and men out there are veterans. They're eligible for Pell grant and they're eligible for the map grant, which is a state grant. I developed master's programs, completion programs for them at whatever it is their financial aid would handle. And I literally made, it was a free program that I made money on. And again, great inspiration to the community. Let's get involved with Benedictine. So you can see the pattern of, of developing new programs. Uh, if you want me to keep going, I mean... Um, I, I'd like to ask you, so I think you're the first president I've interviewed who, it sounds like, intentionally set fire to one of their buildings. So so am I understanding right that you, you, you took this old dorm and you let them do their fire practice on it? I did. But it, was, it wasn't real fire, okay? They have, um, they're able to fill that they have put these 50-gallon drums with some kind of mixture that they light that sets off an artificial smoke that's not dangerous. And, and one of the things that was striking to me with that is I'm in there with air tanks on with a team of guys, and immediately you're engulfed in blackness. You have no sense, okay, of where you are, where east, west, up, down is. And, you know, all over our buildings we see these exit signs, if you're fully engulfed, you can't even see them. It doesn't work. And the way you get out as a fireman is you follow your hose out, okay? 
And so, yes, they were fully engulfed, but after an hour or so, they looked like they did before. Uh, I would have loved to have done that, David, but I think there are probably rules that I couldn't have done that. <laughs> well, I was going to say, maybe if you have the fire department on your side, then the insurance company's okay because, you know, it was – Well, the, well they, they were pretty much written off with insurance. All we had was liability, and, and, right. and in this process, the insurance company handled the, – the fire department handled the liability. Yep. But it was just uh, – the building is long gone, but the feeling is still there. And, and it got to the point that the firemen – uh, some of the firemen who graduated in the, in the graduate program became teachers. I would go to the fire district and I was in one fire district and we're sitting around the table and the alarm went off and I couldn't go with them. They said, Bill, you know your way around. Just lock the place up when you leave. OK, it's just a great relationship. And the town and gown is so important. Absolutely. So it was. I was interested. I when I first saw that you had established a, a, a branch campus in Mesa, I was a little surprised because um you know, that's a place that has both Arizona State, home of the University of Phoenix. And so there were no Catholic competitors, but there were some pretty powerful competitors right in the local area. So what were those names again? What were those names again? Arizona State. I know. Um, You know, and that's why I went there. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to provide an alternative. And and one of the things that I think was really funny is – President Crow, uh, we met each other, but didn't become good friends. Okay, but he had a master's degree out there that was like I think about seventy thousand dollars. Mine cost forty six. I did the fireman thing. I started offering it for free. That caused a response from Arizona State. They changed what they were charging. Now I'm sure it's changed all back, but you know you look. You're not going to find a place that doesn't have competition. And looking at differentiation, we were small. We were private. We were Catholic. Okay. We took selected programs out there and uh, we had the adult program format out there, which they, I don't believe they had at that point. And so we created a niche for ourselves. And uh, I think there were five institutions that went out at the same time, one Catholic and four other. We're the only one who made it. And what I tell other presidents is to do a venture like that, you've got to have some capital. Our success in Chicagoland, okay, gave me the money to build a program in Mesa. It's not a cheap undertaking, but it pays Did off. Did you create a, a, a residential four-year undergrad like you had in Illinois, or was this more focused on the adult market? Well, we actually had a, a, a I don't know if they'd still do it, a, a relationship with the Marriott to become our uh, dormitory. Wow. So we had a close relationship with the hotel. So we had it across the board. Um, we've added sports in, um, in Mesa. We're NAIA. Uh, in Chicago, we're NCAA. And that has wonderful way of attracting students. But the key is go in, respond to the need, differentiate yourself from the competition. And, you know, we don't have to compete. You know, we, we, we have meetings together. We work together. Okay. The market's big enough. Yeah. And what was it that convinced you? Cause when in Springfield, you were going into a, a two-year college that, that was in danger of closure. What was it? Cause you had only not that long being at, at, at Benedictine to, to feel like you could turn that around as well. I guess I was naive. <laughs> um, you know, it's, and you know, every lesson, ultimately we had to close Springfield college after we had a good run and we had to close it because we ran out of 18 year olds in the area. Okay. And um, also, uh, and this is a thing besetting most of our instances, is the infrastructure costs, the delayed maintenance was just unbelievable. Um, so rather than put good money into buildings where we saw no future in populations there, uh, we, we slowly closed the place. And I would be very cautious of, take, of, of taking over other colleges, but just because their problems becomes your problems, you know, their infrastructure, okay, uh, their lack of t- keeping their buildings up for 40 years become your problems. Will your income offset those expenses? That's a hard run. But it was learning. It was learning. Um, I wanted to ask you about a couple of the other initiatives that I think fit very closely with those you've already shared. So the Displaced Earner program that you created um, at Benedictine, um, it sounded like a a really innovative approach, um, you know, for folks who who were going through financial trouble. And I believe that was in the 2008 economic crisis in that And uh, again, we modeled the fireman's program. You know, our tuition by then, we, we, I kept, when I left, I think the tuition was 25000 
This was way below that. Again, taking advantage of veterans, state, and Pell. And it, it, what was surprising to me is it reached out to middle-aged and older people who had lost their jobs, never able to complete school. And they came in, they completed. And to this day, I get notes saying, Bill, thank you. I never thought. And, you know, one scenario where a father's graduating with his daughter. Okay. It just, and that was just, it wasn't about making money. Okay. It was about doing the right thing. And we had grown to the point we knew how to do that. And we were able to, to, uh, to do okay with that. Another key element of your growth, which obviously you've taken over into to Hunter Global Education, was international um, in China and Vietnam. Can, can you talk about uh, were those relationships you already had or how did it come about that that became a, such a significant part of, of the Benedictine yeah, story? I, I, again, I mean, I, I got this idea, okay? I, maybe it's eat, I eat Cheerios every morning. Maybe that's it. But I'm saying, you know, Going into the 21st century, every university has got to be involved in international education. And I also thought no university in the world can be good at every country. So let's get good at one country and get so good that anybody, any business in the Midwest who wants to do business in that country will come to Benedictine because we have the portal. And vice versa, in that country, if they want to come to the Midwest, we have the portal there. So... I didn't consult anybody. Um, I wasn't very academic, I guess, in shared governance in that. I simply announced, we're going to start a venture in China. David, I have no idea why I chose China, okay? China was not, it's just beginning its economic boom, okay? We put some feet on the ground, an itinerant Benedictine guy who was walking around China looking for partnerships. Um, we established our first partnership in Xinjiang, China, which is Northeast China, uh, developed a master's completely on the ground, uh, worked through the Higher Learning Commission and, and, and all the others. Then we went over to uh, Dalian and took a public health program over there. These programs are still running. An engineering school, an architecture school in Xinjiang wanted us to come in. Then we went to four or five other places throughout China with that same model of developing joint programs where we're not paying recruiters to send us students. And I'm really not in favor of recruiters because my feeling is they take their students to the institution that pays them the most money. We established joint programs with Xinyang University of Engineering, for example, and Benedictine, a two plus two program, a three plus one program, uh, a three plus two, a complete MBA on the ground over there. Those things are still happening, okay, with universities and they're growing exponentially. Couple of years into my program, I get a call from Vietnam. I don't get a lot of calls from Vietnam, but all of a sudden Vietnam called me. They called me a long time ago, but I said no. <laughs> but you know, it's just they said, "Could you bring your China program, exact duplicate, to Vietnam?" And this call came from Vietnam National University, which is the national university, the biggest one in the country. And little Benedictine went over there, and we started our uh, MBA program in their school of business, and then that grew into other institutions in Vietnam. And again, these are pipeline programs. They're not one in and one out. Uh, for example, in both China and Vietnam, for our joint programs, the Ministry of Education and Training for Vietnam or MOE, Ministry of Education for China, say you can have 120 students a year in this program, every year. And this program will last for 10 years. Look at the numbers, okay? And that's exactly what happened. That's what's still going on big time. So we did that quite well. Um, the challenge then becomes, how do I send faculty to China? And as a president, you know, faculty need to go and kick the tires. Faculty have to approve everything. Okay, that was all done. So we sent the first group of faculty to teach. They loved it. They had a great time. That's a long trip. So then we added in Benedictine what I call my Asia faculty pool. Former professors from Northwestern, from all over, who love to travel and teach, would go over there and teach and still do. Well, COVID brought that up. But it, it opened up another leg of the table for the enrollment. We had hundreds of students at Benedictine from China. Plus, I think we have close to seven or 8,000 students on the ground right now in China who never came to Benedictine. Okay. And now it's been so many years I go over there and I feel like a granddaddy. All the former students want me to come visit their children. And it, it's just, you know, it's just a great relationship between these two countries. 
And, and so the model that you created with obviously all with uh, uh, local university partners and the government backing was that students could either complete their full degree in China or Vietnam, or if they wished, they could start their studies there and then transfer to Benedictine yeah. in the U.S.? Early, early on, it started at high school, excuse me, at graduate level, master's primarily. Then it has slipped down to the undergraduate. Both China and Vietnam now say, we don't need another MBA student in this country. Okay, we've, we've pretty much filled up that closet. So now it's at the undergraduate level. And so, for example, one of my clients in Hunter just got a fabulous program in the visual arts, okay, with a Chinese university. And they had 300 students in that program. So it started graduate. Now it's undergraduate. And American higher education is still number one in the world. No matter what we think of it internally, we're still the envy of the world. I have had parents say, please take my child home and put them in an American high school so they can get into an American university. Okay. So now we're actually having joint programs with high schools where universities are partnering with the high schools to have the high schools send their students to America when they graduate. So it's a robust Vietnam, you know, China is well established. A lot of American institutions there. Vietnam is about 15 years behind and I'm dealing with a lot of institutions now getting them into Vietnam because now Vietnam is beginning to grow. Great. Um, can you say a little more? You, you mentioned you were an early mover among private universities in uh, in the online space. How did you um, go about creating the capabilities, gaining the faculty buy-in, and and financing that? Because while you were early among the privates, there were some pretty major for-profits and others already in the space. So how did you go about creating, you know, Benedictine's niche in this? Well. One of the things, and, and I, you know this, people ask me all the time, what drives me? It's pretty simple. It's a four-letter word, fear. Absolute stark raving fear of running out of students, okay? So I'm building my tabletops, getting stirred here. I see all this online stuff going on. So I have an opportunity to go be one of the first online. I partner with an outside, you know, for-profit vendor, um, I don't know if I can mention their name or not, uh, but I did. Collegius Education. Right. I partnered with them. Uh, Collegius has been a good friend in my journey. And I tell people, we didn't, Benedict did not get there alone. It was a partnership primarily through Collegius, their marketing, their IT capability. Collegius came in, worked with us and the faculty on developing online platforms. And then through their mechanisms began, you know, putting it out around the world, actually the world. Okay. Um, and as I said earlier, we immediately got students from Alabama in the nursing program. Uh, we started with degree completion programs. Um, partway through that journey, a couple months in, I get an invitation from Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank. And they have an annual meeting of the for-profit institutions. And I was invited to go there with three or four other Benedictine-type institutions. And I was on a panel. And they were asking us questions. And my response was, the for-profits have the market right now, but when the name brand institutions start hitting that market, we're going to destroy it for them, okay? And I think that's what's happening. What happened after that meeting, David, was interesting. I had five subsequent meetings, and I said, to, I, said well, I don't know these people. Why are we having meetings? So the first group comes in, and they say, Dr. Carroll, we want to buy Benedictine. And I said, guys... Benedictine is not for sale. We don't do that. And that's just simply the mindset. Okay. We're in it for the long haul, not necessarily the profit. So we got in early. We were able to develop all kinds of online programming. Um, and, you know, that should serve institutions now that the post COVID because Zoom is now open all over the world for online courses. So if you're not online right now, institutions need to get there real fast. That's the new highway. Infrastructure is technology, the new highway. So in addition to, you know, receiving wonderful recognition as the fastest growing university in the U.S. from 2000 to 2012, I know you must be very proud of the fact that you were one of the most diverse at the same time. You've mentioned oh, yeah. a couple of things that helped with that, the outreach to the local Islamic community, the international partnerships. Were there other things that you did that helped to build that very diverse student population? Yes. I mean, Coppin State College. I was two or three white professors there, okay? I was a kid, okay? I was brand new. They welcomed me. 
And as I grew from instructor to professor to dean, I started noticing something. And what I noticed was that we don't have any trouble at Coppin getting top flight African-American professors. I don't see a whole lot of white professors. We have no trouble at all. So then I transitioned over to Ohio Dominican, again, known for its diversity. And what Sister Mary Andrew did there, and we did it together, was we were in a black neighborhood. Okay. And uh, we started a program, and it it date me, but Village to Child, uh, Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. We started the Village to Child program. We opened up the university, the college, to the neighborhood kids after school with tutors so they could come on the campus before their parents got home from work, be in a safe space, get tutored, get something to eat. They protected the campus. It was their property. Okay. Again, reaching out, inclusion. When I went to Benedictine, one of the reasons I think they selected me was because my history of diversity, but also they were in the middle of racial tensions. You know, a black student and his best right, white student friend got in a fight. They were football players. All hell broke loose. Okay. And I was brought in in the middle of that. And I brought them both in and said, next time I'm going to punch somebody, come punch me. And this is going to stop. And I spent a lot of time going out, meeting with parents, black parents in the city, talking about the Benedictine that will be. And one of my mantras, David, was that if you want to be a multicultural or diverse institution, when a student walks in the door, they need to see a mirror image of themselves. They need to see it in a student body. Pretty easy. They need to see it in the staff. Pretty easy. They need to see it in the faculty. Getting harder now. They need to see it in the administration. Getting even harder. And they need to see it in the board. Getting even harder. And God forbid they need to see it even in the curriculum. Okay, that's the mark of a truly diverse institution. And all of us are on that journey, that road to get there. So a lot of triggers in my life. And, you know, I I said I I grew up in Dallas, Pennsylvania. I was 24 years old before I met a person of color. Okay, first time in my life. And it was in seminary. And he said, Bill, he said, I I get to see you're a little nervous about me. Why don't you just touch me? I mean, I was I was just I was stupid. Okay, I just was not knowledgeable. And that young man now is a bishop in the Catholic Church. Uh, pretty profound. That's great. Um, can you say a little, you know, you got, you said you went into the board when you got the job and you said, you know, either we got to close or you got to give me free reign to, to, to really drive this growth. The, uh, the other part of making that happen is you need the buy-in from the faculty and, and the institution. How did you mobilize the, the, the different stakeholders within Dominican into your vision of, of growth and these new programs? Well, there, there's two steps. Before, before we get to that one, the board chair for a long, long time gave me a gift, okay? He invented the French fry process for McDonald's, okay? And he said, I don't care what you say, Dr. Carroll. From this day forward, we are running Benedictine University as a business, which means your income has to equal expenses. I grew up in an academic culture. We made our FTE. Everything is fine. Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. You run it like a business. And, and I'm sure you used to come to May and the faculty say, well, I still have money in my budget. I need to spend it. That doesn't mean it's in the bank. Okay. So I early on got the, the, the feeling we have to run this like a business. Now, faculty, one of the things I learned both from uh, from Coppin through Ohio Dominican, through teaching elsewhere and getting to Benedictine is across this country, faculty are the same. They just have different names, same personality types. You no, know, Oh, that's Mary Smith. That's John here at Benedictine. And faculty want to be recognized. They want to be appreciated. They want to be allowed to do their work. Okay. They want to be consulted. And in those days at Benedictine, I, I had a thing called university council where I had council faculty and um, the first year or so, um, I said to them, you know, we have serious budget problems. I need a $3 million cut from you, a $2 million and a $1 million cut from you by next week. The joint response week. was, yeah, the response was, Dr. Carroll, that's an administrative job. That's not our job, which then opened up a whole new path. Okay. I'll take care of those cuts. And we didn't have to cut a whole lot of faculty positions like I see going on now. Some, some were just had no majors in them anymore. 
But it opened up a path for me to deal with the faculty a little bit differently. And I've always had a mantra of myself is, you know, if they think I'm a little bit crazy and will do anything, they're much better able to work with me. Okay. Because everybody want they want success of the institution. So here comes crazy Bill Carroll with another crazy idea. Let's listen to him and see where it goes. But the key to working, I think, with any faculty is in every faculty, you have the naysayers. And then you have faculties, I call them stars, flagpoles. These are the people that the faculty will glom onto. They look to them for leadership. I immediately try and identify who they are. I did. I got them involved in working with me on the adult programming, which is really testy even to this day with faculty because it's a different pedagogical format. But the, the stars work with me, and then the rest of the faculty bought in. I got the, the flag, the faculty flags to work with me on China and Vietnam. They did, and they're proud now. And now they have joint research going on between two countries. So you cannot avoid shared governance, but you have to have a mutual understanding of what it meant. And so that dark day of having to cut significantly like that, they said, no, that's your, you do that, okay? But then that opened the door for this other kind of conversation. And I, I'm afraid that when we talk about shared governments, it's kind of like, you know, St. Augustine said, everybody knows what time is until you ask them, okay? Shared governments, we all know what that is until you really peck it down and say, this is what it is. But we had, I had a wonderful faculty, great partners, um, and you know, the idea at Benedictine was we were a family. Yeah, you're, but everybody does everything, okay? Uh, I had no diversity office, okay? And the reason for that was diversity is everybody's responsibility. If I have a diversity offer on the fourth floor of Kinlan Hall, if I run into a problem, I'll oh, go over to the fourth floor. That's their job. No, we were all charged with that. We also started um, the Martin Luther King breakfast. We had that. In Chicago, in Columbus, I got to uh, Ohio Dominican uh, Benedictine, and I asked my CFO, who was a, uh, an African American man of color, and I said, uh, "Where's the Martin Luther King breakfast?" He says, "What's that?" And so I announced we're having our first Martin Luther King breakfast, and all of a sudden I start getting interesting telephone calls from Grand this and Grand that, and no, you shouldn't do that. And I let them listen to Mister Click, and the first Martin Luther King breakfast had more undercover policemen there. Okay, then it had guests. By the time I left, it was the largest MLK celebration in Chicago. Okay, and is still going on. So, you know, I'm wandering on your question, but your faculty have to be involved in all of that. Respect who they are. Okay, I've also come to a conclusion that there's no such thing as faculty. There's not a fact. They're individual faculty members, but there's not a single persona. And you've got to, you know, deal with the ones you can. And the others will come on later. And we had a great run with faculty. Great run. You, you obviously had, had a great run overall with Benedictine. What, what was, in that 20-year journey, what was the, the most challenging situation that you faced? And how, how did you end up resolving? Again, this will go back to my earliest days at Coppin. Is when I was a faculty member, and this I, I think is not the challenge per se, but I'll show you how I handled it. When I was a faculty member, I listened to the voices of my colleagues in the department of other students, other students. When I came a dean, I had other voices I had to listen to. As I went up in administration, I began to hear another voice. And the higher up I got, that voice became louder. And that voice was the voice of the institution. And I always refer to her as a she, okay? When I got to Illinois Benedictine College, that was a very weak and vulnerable voice. And my strategy was, I've got to make that voice strong. I am here to serve that voice and to serve that institution and to serve the founders who founded this place, not any particular group here today. And that guidement, you, you deal with mercy and justice and, 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 and fairness. But my goal was not to protect a department, but to protect the institution. And, you know, I would always tell people we're grateful and all our private institutions were founded by wonderful people. Benedictine has a cemetery on campus that has the early day founders, but we're just as much a founder today as they were then in the 1800s. And if you don't continue founding your institution, it's going to die. It's going to die. Okay. You're not there at your institution to be a place center. You got to keep founding and growing. So given that need to keep growing, how, how did you decide it was the right time for you to, to step down from Benedictine? 
I, I said, I'm going to leave after 10 years. And when 10 years came along, I said to myself, I don't even know the place yet. There's so many arteries and avenues to get to understand this place. So let me, so I said, let me stay another 10 years. Well, I didn't even get it. When I got to, I started, when I start getting bored, I've done this. I've done the budgets. Okay. I've done the interaction with faculty. I've grown the programs. Is there anything else out there? And I said, it's time for this institution to get new leadership and for me to move on. I also saw an opportunity out there that given the Asian experience, the wonderful successes we were having, many of our private, most of our private institutions want to do something like that, but they don't know how. So so let me step out of being a president and establish Hunter Global Education and work with private institutions to get them into significant income producing partnerships with Asian institutions. And I did that. And um, I didn't look back. I, I've been asked a couple times, would I be a pre- I don't want to be a president again. Okay. And in recent, as a result of that, I, I, I'm now an executive uh, director of St. Joseph's College in Indiana. St. Joseph's closed in 2017. It's the nicest closed college you're ever going to find in your life. The grass is cut. The fountains are working. HVAC is on in the main buildings. Okay. And what we're doing there is they're closed. They can't come back to an accredited status. So I'm developing a partnership system where we're working with established, recognized higher educational institutions that will bring their programs primarily online to serve the students in that area. I want to take that model in and develop with other institutions. So after presidency, all the skills you've learned through there are still alive and well. And it was hard to leave Benedictine, but I don't regret it. I mean, it was, it was time. Okay. And, uh, I don't think they regret me leaving, quite frankly, but that's okay too. <laughs> it was time. It's time for new blood. Every institution has got to pass that mantle, and you're not going to be there forever. And and the lesson I've learned personally is, you're you're, you're the institution is like a, a an ocean liner going through the ocean, leaving this huge wake behind it, but all of a sudden it disappears, and that's the path of a president. You're leaving this huge wake, but quickly the ocean forms behind it. Okay, and you don't know what to do with it. One of the things that, uh, on that analogy of the ocean, one of the things I found out my role as a president was to lead the institution, to be the captain of the ship. And being the captain of the ship means I need to pick out a spot on the horizon and steer the institution to that spot. Now that spot on the horizon is your, whatever you're, you're going to call it, strategic plan, whatever. But that spot is your vision. The challenge is you've got to make that vision, the institution's vision, or your vision is then known as a hallucination. Okay. I don't like hallucinations. Okay. We empower people and, and quite, we had a, a track record of success. So you start building confidence in the naysayers and oh, why not? Let's try it. And all by the way, you know, in the model of a business, the salaries went up, the healthcare was really good. The retirement plan was well taken care of. People like that, but you've got to be successful. That tabletop with all those supporting legs has to be strong. So I'm curious when you said you, you didn't want to be, uh, you know, go into another presidency, but taking on the role of executive director at St. Joseph's, um, that, that seems a very challenging task, a college that's closed, you have the campus there. How did it come about and what have you been doing with them since 2017 to make this new vision possible? Yeah, um, I, was, I, I was chased for a long time by the board chair. And the board chair uh, had a son at Bennett, which is the academy across the street from Benedictine. He saw what we had done at Benedictine. And um, I had been asked by the former board chair to come over, even when I was president, to talk to the president of St. Joseph's and kind of give them a map of how they might get out of this, this downfall. And I did, and I never heard back from them. Then I heard they closed. But the chair called me and said, we'd like you to be president of the new St. Joseph's. I said, Mike, I don't want to be president of anything. And I said, what I will do is I will come back and bring academic programming back, okay, to Rensselaer, Indiana. And uh, and I did that. I'm in North Carolina. I'm not in Rensselaer, Indiana. And I'm not about, my wife says, we're not moving to Rensselaer, Indiana. <laughs> so we do it from here. It has a very small staff. We meet on Tuesday. It's a team member that's a team of one group of people who work wonderfully together. They don't need a day, day-to-day supervision. So... The college, when it closed, had three goals, to take care of the current students. And there were about 900. They had a good number of students. Uh, to secure the debt, the debt was big, 
and then also bring it back. They took care of the students. They have secured the debt, and now they're bringing it back. And we developed a strategic plan, and it had two arms to it. One is the St. Joseph University Partners, and the other is the St. Joseph's uh, Career College. The Career College uh, is responding to the liberal arts institutions being criticized for not preparing students for a career. So we brought in these wonderful certificate programs, by the way, paid for by the state of Indiana, that in a few short weeks, students can go from no job to $65,000 a year job based on these certificates. Healthcare certificates, welding we're working on, drones we're working on, dispatch, EMT, okay? And adding more certificates all the time. And in some classes, we have a waiting list, okay? Which is wonderful. On the partner side, that's harder bringing credit back, okay? And we have worked, we have working with three institutions now, uh, one in Texas, okay, uh, one in Illinois, and one in Indiana. And they are bringing in, and we're just starting the enrollment process now, but they're bringing in an online cybersecurity program. It's a two-year program for $9,000. Uh, then the another college is bringing in uh, an intro to business program for 18-year-olds, but also a, those who have a community college degree. And then the other college is bringing in nursing, EMT, and pan medicine. And what they're all doing, and I'm saying, you got to remember, it's not about price. It's the cheapest price we can get, and you got to keep the tuition low. Every one of them are offering their first courses for free, which is phenomenal, okay? And then after that, we can pick up on the traditional ways. The way that works is we split the income, okay? I see that as a future for many of our colleges, the, the problem with St. Joseph's is they lost their accreditation and it's harder coming back. But institutions with declining numbers can do this and save themselves a lot of trouble. They already have a lot of accredited courses on there. You don't have to be all things to all people anymore. And I'm seeing great new partnerships and consortia being formed around these ideas. So St. Joseph's is alive and well. The, the other thing I learned, uh, which was surprising to me, in, in Chicago, we could talk about being an urban institution, not far from the city. But our rural institutions function as many times like they are urban institutions. Rensselaer is a rural setting. Farms, okay, farmers, okay, manufacturing, okay. We need to focus on that population and not worry about trying to be urban. Intro to agronomy or something like, you know, agriculture, okay. Business for farmers, okay. Adapting to the, I think that's a model we need to look at at all our institutions. Everybody's trying to be the classic liberal arts college. no. Look at your location. Who's your market? So it's up and growing as well. It's going to gain a lot of steam. Uh, we're hiring a, some more people at Rensselaer. Very slowly and very carefully. Great. I wanted to ask you a little more, more about Hunter Global Education. So obviously with the success you'd had um, at Benedictine and the relationships, you had a great foundation, but you formed it in 2015. And Subsequent years were, were not necessarily the kindest to international education for the U.S. We had, for the first time in a long time, an administration that was not sort of putting out the welcome mat. And then we had the global pandemic, the tensions we've seen between the U.S. and China. So I, I'm curious, how have you navigated that? And, and how do you see the future of international education unfolding? Well, Inside Higher Education just announced we're up 68% already, okay, in new international enrollments for this year. I've learned a lot about the value of Hunter during the COVID crisis. You know, people, th I can't travel to China right now or Vietnam without being in quarantine for 21 days if they're even flying there. What I learned about my company is I have people on the ground in those countries. They didn't stop working. They were still representing the American institutions. And behind this veiled screen of nothing is happening, many American universities are very busy in China and Vietnam right now. Why? Because America is the number one, okay, higher education destination in the world. We had 350,000 Chinese students here before COVID. We will get them back. My optimism is China's a good country. They're good people. America's a good country with good people. We all care about the same thing. Our governments go at it. But the people are wonderful. And that is an optimism that carries me into, it's going to be even more robust. One of the things that's happened in Asia as a result of COVID is before COVID, online learning was basically no. It wasn't allowed. It was frowned upon. It's now become the new venue. 
So during COVID, with my clients, um, we established two or three new programs and now have hundreds of stu- students in them. The education where we were supposed to be sending American university professors to, uh, you know, Xi'an, uh, let's say China, we couldn't go. So we're doing the teaching via Zoom, eight o'clock at night, eight o'clock there morning. Okay. It's working wonderfully. And I, I struggle now with the American institutions because now's the time to strike because Vietnam especially is looking for new partners. China is too at different levels. We're so worried about income and expenses and cutting and getting tighter and tighter. We're not willing to take the opportunity to gain, accrue new income. Remember, legs of the table. If you're not robust now and international, it's going to be hard to get in that game. One of the values that uh, I have from uh, my years at Benedictine is I have 20 plus years experience in China and Vietnam now, as does my partner. And Asia is run by relationships, Guanxi, okay? You can come in as a president, okay, and go to China. You've probably been there, okay? 50 cities. Okay, and you get MOUs from every city, okay? MOUs are meaningless, okay? What helps is, oh, that's Dr. Carroll. We trust him. We don't know that university he's with, but we know it's a good one because we trust him. Also, you have to understand the Ministry of Education in China and Ministry of Education and Training in Vietnam. They need to be worked with. That you know, they're like our higher education, uh, higher learning commission, or the Department of Education. You need to work and know what the ground rules are, how it works. We do that extremely well for our clients. Uh, you know, international education exchanges produce nothing. The kids have a great experience. Okay, it's no income for the institution. Okay, but these long-term relationships are. And one of the most exciting things I ever had at Benedictine was. I had 17 faculty from a Chinese university and 17 Benedictine faculty in the same room talking about teaching. I burst into tears. That's what it's all about. Okay. And the Benedictine faculty now have lifelong partners in other institutions. They're offering classes together where, you know, you can have a, a student uh, and not so anywhere, but you do a, a team taught course, China, Vietnam, wherever. And at the end of the, cor- at the, end of the uh, class, you have a group assignment. Seven kids are in the United States, seven are in China, but they're in the same group. They've got to figure out how to work 7,000 miles apart. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So, and that, that's going to be a great source of student. That, we see our demographic decline. The international market is out there waiting for us. So I, I'm curious, as you look at the, what the next decade may hold for, for the smaller private institutions like Benedictine when you first came there and you look across, say, the, the CIC universe of, of, of private independent colleges, how do you see things playing out with the, the different forces that are impacting higher ed? You're going to get me in trouble on this one. Um, I don't think it's a good picture for most of our institutions that, um, maybe 2,000 students or less. Uh, One of the things that we're not very honest about in America is that we have different tiers of institutions in this country. China will talk about one, two, three, four tier institutions. We have the same thing, okay? I know Benedictine belongs to a certain tier, okay? And it serves that tier quite well. You probably are a different tier. You serve that tier quite well. But the institutions on the lower tiers, wonderful liberal arts institutions, have got to find a different way of doing business. The, the higher tiered, more affluent institutions will be able to adapt with technology. But the changes I see coming is going to be dramatic across the board. The lower tiered institutions have a choice. Either partner or pack up your bags and go home. Okay, you cannot continue to have 80 or 90 majors with 100 faculty and no students. Okay. And oh, by the way, there's a new mantra out there that even questions whether a degree is even necessary. Talk to Google and their six-month course at $14 or $15 a month, okay, with real job possibilities. We have to adapt. I'm a big opponent of the credit, okay? The Carnegie unit came into existence, I believe, in 1906. And since then, it's become a billable unit, an accounting function. Why is it that at Benedictine, I need 120 hours to graduate. 119, I'm not yet a graduate. 
but something magical happens at 120 or I have 110 and you still won't let me graduate because I hit that magic number. In my mind, nothing. Okay. It's, we're going to go to a competency-based, a skills-based, okay, a prior learning-based experience. Zoom is not, Zoom and, and IT is going to become the infrastructure on which everything travels. My lovable, this is my philosophy. I still love, philosophy is not going to disappear, but it probably won't be standalone. Be a lot more team teaching. We'll be working with the business faculty on real life cases. We'll be working out in the larger market, in businesses, as philosophers, as historians. Uh, I don't need to lecture anymore because guess what? The student can get all this stuff online. You know, the asynchronous um, is anytime, anywhere. The synchronous is, you know, we do it right now like we're doing now. Uh, that's going to be the choice. There's a hybrid or high flex model and you can dial up for asynchronous or dial down for synchronous. Uh, this gets me in trouble. Libraries as we know them today are gone in the future. We don't need books anymore. Okay, just like after Galilee, after uh, Gutenberg, we didn't need scrolls anymore or sheepskin. Okay, that doesn't mean the data is gone. It's going to be other ways of, of garnering the data. Our current library comes more like a museum, and this asynchronous mode to me becomes the library of tomorrow. There's not much I can't get online that I, you know, can get in the library. I mean, it's all there. Um, again, credit hour, you're going to map the curriculum. You're going to know what skills are covered where. Okay. Uh, you'll need fewer faculty. Uh, it's just going to be a dynamic change. Some of the institutions will continue as they are. I doubt it very much, but some may. But it's going to be just COVID is to higher education as the Industrial Revolution and Gutenberg. Okay. Where to their various areas? It's going to it's changed us dramatically. We can never go back. The key looking at the future, if I'm a president, is how do I best prepare my institution to keep a tabletop strong? Where do I find new student populations that have yet to be tapped? What can I do in the curriculum that makes it different? Okay, the senior model I mentioned so long ago. Wonderful source of loving students who keep you going. But this notion that we are not a business, we've got to survive. And it means we've got to do new and exciting things. For, for institutions that are a bit on, it's an exciting time. And I think the one thing that challenges me for wanting to go back and be a president is what a great time to be a president. You get to be a 21st century founder. You better get it right, but you're your 21st century founder. And it's just, it's a great time to be a president. But all the things I talk about are not going to happen, but a lot of them are. A lot of them already are. Uh, you know, I saw a demonstration where a student applied to an institution, was accepted within 10 minutes, had his course within 10 minutes after that, and had a dorm assigned to him with a dorm student, a buddy, okay, in a heartbeat. You know, when I'm working with institutions on international, a question I ask him is, how long does it take you to admit somebody? Oh, a couple of weeks. I said, you're not going to be in the game. A student sends out an application today. And in 24 hours, if they haven't heard from you, they've already accepted somewhere else. You know, the open app is wonderful. It means you're going to get more application. It doesn't mean you're going to get more students. You've got to really make that efficient, really efficient. And a great tuition has gone, okay? Um, you know, some colleges, the, the higher tier, I've talked to their presidents where they can actually run their institution based on their endowments. You know, Benedictine can't, but we can't raise our tuition. My strategy with tuition always was keep it low, and make money through volume. So by you know keeping a, a, a low cost, I get more students and still make the same amount of money. So a lot of great, exciting changes going on. It's great to be a president. Uh, faculty, they're the back of the whole. They need to be part of the planning process. But understand, it's changing. It is changing. So, Bill, I, I'm sure you must be asked a lot, um, given the success you had in you're giving advice to new college presidents on things you learned from your tenure. You've already touched on some of them, you know, keeping alive that fear of where, where are your students going to come from, listening to the voice of the institution, treating it as a business. Are, are there other lessons you've distilled where, where you give advice to folks and as they think about this job and, and how to approach it? Yeah. Um, being a president, you know, as I went from faculty to president, people who'd have an experience just don't understand it, but it's gotten to be a very lonely job as you rise the rank. Okay. 
And my wife tells a story where we would go to a, a meeting, a, a party with faculty and something like that. And I'd say to her, let's go so they can talk about us now. Okay. And as you go up the ranks, it's a very lonely time. And then there's the phenomenon of two or three o'clock in the morning. I'm sure you've never experienced this, where you're dead awake and the sweat is dripping off you. And it's the absolute worst time in the world. And what I always said I wanted to do is I wanted to start the three in the morning president's club where we could talk to each other and talk our way out of this morass. When you wake up, it's never as bad as it was last night. And that's just something that happens. Uh, I do tell new presidents that you are going to get blindsided. Okay. And always remember that the first shot, it's this is when you get blindsided or something like this happens, it's like a book. It's only the first chapter. Don't react as if it's the last chapter. And I'm sure you've had the experience where things like, oh my God, this is terrible. But as you work your way through it, it starts getting better and you see a light at the end of the tunnel. In institutions that are struggling, I tell presidents, it didn't happen overnight. You're not going to fix it overnight. Okay? So pace yourself. Uh, I'm working with an institution right now that has a $3 million deficit, brand new president. And I said to her, I said, it didn't happen overnight. You're not going to fix it overnight. Get your CFO busy and tell him to give you a three or four year plan of how you're going to come out of it. In the meantime, you're building new income reducing programs. So it's a lonely job. Presidents need to be able to talk to each other, not just at CIC. I, I, I call CIC the rooster's place. We walk around and we cluck. Okay. Like, and it's, it's a very scary, it's a scary world. It's a lonely job. And there's no handbook on how to be a president. And what the Benedictines taught me, which is really important, was always the first St. Benedict wrote a rule for monks. The very first word is listen. And I tell new presidents, listen, find out who the faculty stars are that you need to get close to. You'll quickly find out who the naysayers are, but find your stars, start working them. Also, get out of your office. Go into a faculty's office members and talk to them. Have lunch with the students. You know, do team things. And, and I, I would always say, Benedictine, we can't work together if we can't play together. And we would have uh, twice a year a Benedictine cleanup where everybody, faculty, staff, and students were invited out in the yard with jeans. And the only requirement was you weren't afraid to get dirty. We'd cut trees, plant trees, pick up, start gardens. Okay. The camaraderie of working next to somebody I didn't even know built the camaraderie around the university. And, um, you know, it's just a special, it's a special calling to be a president with a lot of responsibilities. And I think the loneliness, you know, reach out to people you can talk to, get a coach, get a mentor. Okay. Uh, it's okay to say, I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as presidents, you know, as we've grown in the presidencies, you can be in trouble today for something you didn't even know nothing about. Okay. You're immediately blamed. Okay. You need to learn how to handle that. Okay. And while I sometimes seem like I may be harsh on faculty governance in that, they're your best buddies. The faculty love the institution. Partner with them. Work with them. And let them know you're listening to the voice of the institution and it's calling us in this way. And I want you to help me build the liberal arts institution of tomorrow. Okay. And I think in, in fairness to faculty, we were taught to teach by our graduate school teachers. And it's kind of like the person with the white beard. Okay, taught me how to teach philosophy. And he said, Bill, go there and teach philosophy. So I go there with my lunch bucket and I teach it. And I've been teaching it that way. And he said, Don't you change it till I come back. All right. And David's like waiting for Godot. And then I realized one day when I looked in the mirror, I'm that white bearded teacher now who can change it. And I think that's the message to faculty. You're not put there just to keep on teaching like you've been teaching. Evolve it. Look at the tools you have that you didn't have 50 years ago. It dynamically changes the classroom. Great. So. And as a final question, Bill, I, I'd love if you'd share any advice you have on post-presidency. What what have you found in terms of, of your new life running Hunter and doing these other assignments? I don't know how I tend to be president, okay? Um, what worries me about, you know, you know, people say, oh, Bill Carroll retired. No, he didn't. I'm actually busier now than I ever was. And I think the message to you know, people thinking about retirement is retirement is, it was a new beginning. Okay. 
the key to, I think, a good retirement is stay busy, okay? Whether it's when you're still teaching in one course a semester or developing new stuff or starting your own business, that thing upstairs called a TV is a death trap, okay? Exercise. I'm a swimmer, okay? I've been swimming for 40 years, right? It's it's no big deal. It's, it's I'm addicted. I ha- But that gets rid of that 3 o'clock in the morning. So continue to exercise and have a schedule of things. If you want to call the bucket list, fine. But have a reason to get out of bed. Have a reason to get off that couch. You've got great skills to offer the community. You can volunteer, okay? Maybe somebody will hire you. Maybe you want to start your own business, okay? You've got a lot to offer. Use it, okay? If you're in minority communities, I mean, the biggest, the business acumen you bring as a president could be earth-changing for these kids. You know, use those talents. You, you're not leaving to die. You're just starting a new phase. And I think, I hope most presidents leave because they just realize it's time. I need to do something else. And because uh, you can also get so bored, then you're hurting the institution. Uh, but just market time to leave and then start something else. And it's a challenge for every one of us. But there is life after being a president. It's a good life after being president. <laughs> I think that that's a, a great note to end on. Bill, thank you so much for taking your time to share your wisdom with us. It's been a great pleasure getting to know you and wish you all the best. And David, thank you. And we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.